We're in Daniel chapter 10, and this is the final section of Daniel, the final vision. And we already talked about the fact that each vision is getting more detailed. Then it, it gets more detailed. It also zooms in more on the Seleucids and Antiochus IV. And so we're really going to see that tonight. So before with a beast, we've got a general idea of kingdoms. Then with the goats, we got a more specific zoomed in on the Persians and the Greeks. And then with the 70 weeks, we got more zoomed in on the actual length of exile that's going to last before the Messiah comes, and specifically how Antiochus IV is related to that. Now, we're really getting into the Ptolemies and Seleucids. And God's going to get probably more detailed and more consecutive here than he has in any vision or any prophecy that we've ever seen. But it starts with a prayer that Daniel has. In chapter 10, verse 1, In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar. This message was true and concerned a great war. He understood the message and gained insight by the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three whole weeks, and I ate no choice food, no meat or wine came to my lips, nor did I anoint myself with oil until the end of these three weeks. So Daniel is given a vision of a war, and we don't know what this war is, although chapters 11 and 10 are going to kind of give a lot of details, so the implications of the war that he's thinking about has to do with chapter 10 and 12, sorry, chapter 11 and 12. Chapter 11 and 12 seems to be the detailed response to the vision of the war that Daniel got. So it has something to do with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids in relation to Israel. Either way, this war, he saw it. He saw a war in his mind in the vision and disturbed him. Disturbed him so much that he didn't eat. He fasted for three weeks and he prayed to God during this entire time to get an answer. Like, why did you show me this war? What does all this mean for my people Israel? And so that's the context of his prayer, is that he is praying for an understanding of this war that he has seen. On the 24th day of the first month, I was beside the great river Tigris, and I looked up and I saw a man clothed in linen. Around his waist was a belt made of gold from Upas. His body resembled yellow jasper, and his face had the appearance like lightning. His eyes were like blazing torches. His arms and feet had the gleam of polished bronze. His voice thundered forth like the sound of a large crowd. Now, this is obviously an angel. Now, what's interesting is most of the time we see angels in the First Testament, they just look like humans. They're not described as having wings. They're not described as having light coming out of them. They're not described as having a thunderous voice. They're just humans. In fact, when they come to Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis, Abraham just thinks they're normal people. Even when they go into Song of Moore, they just think that they're normal people. And oftentimes we see this. There's very few times that we get this sense that the angel is appearing as something more than a human. And specifically in Daniel, that's where we see it. Daniel really gets detailed. Now we see the seraphim and the cherubim, but they're not really called angels. They're some kind of supernatural being that we have no idea what they really truly are. And they're all in heaven. But the idea of them actually coming to earth or in a vision and coming with light and thunderous voices, that is very rare. Very rare in the First Testament. It mostly happens in Daniel. 
Now, when we get to the Second Testament, we see that more with the angels visiting Mary and Joseph, the Annunciations. We see it in the book of Revelation quite a bit. But in the First Testament, they mostly appear to be like humans. There's something unique about why God is sending forth this angel to look like it is powerful and glorious in light. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it. On the contrary, they were overcome with fright and ran away to hide. Now the men that are with him are not seeing it. Only Daniel has the eyes to see it. But they sensed something that was so powerful and so scary that they ran and hid. Now remember, Daniel is an official. He is an ambassador. Most likely the men that are with him are soldiers. And the fact that these trained soldiers of the Persian Empire that ruled over the world and conquered everything, and they're running away, suggests something. I was left alone to see this great vision. My strength drained from me, and my vigor disappeared. I was without energy. I listened to his voice, and I did so. And as I did so, I fell into a trance-like sleep with my face to the ground. Now, this is earth-shattering. <laughs> I've never, ever felt like my all my energy has been drained out of my body to the point that I want to collapse. Notice he says, I fell asleep with my face to the ground. There might be this idea that he, like, fell to the ground when he lost all of his energy and he's on his face. He said to me, Daniel, you are of great value. Understand the words that I'm about to speak to you. So stand up for I have now been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up shaking. Then he said to me, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the very first day that you applied your mind to understand and humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come to respond in your, to your words. However, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was opposing me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the leading princes, came to help me because I was left there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to you to help you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the future days. Now this is interesting. He says, the minute you started praying, I was sent to answer your prayer. But it took me 21 days to get to you because the prince of Persia opposed me. The last time Daniel prayed, the angel Gabriel appeared to him in the previous chapters immediately. Daniel said, I didn't even get finished praying, and the angel was there. We know from the Bible that angels can move as fast as lightning, and maybe even faster, but that's just the metaphor that is used at their speed. So we know that they have incredible speed. We know that they can move through dimensions incredibly quick. And so we know he can get to Daniel pretty quickly, yet it took him 21 days. And he tells you why. Now the question is, who's the prince of Persia? The context makes it clear. We know it's not literally the human prince of Persia. Because there's no way a human prince by the name of Cyrus II can stop an angelic being with this light and power coming out of him in any kind of a way. In fact, we've seen this where the angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah and they just merely like blind everybody in the entire city with the light coming out of them. We see that even Michael has the ability to fight against the devil and Jude. We see that, that when Jacob is wrestling an angel, the angel just has to merely touch his hip and it pops out of its socket. That's power. There's no way a human is able to stand against this. And every time we see the army of God appearing in the Bible, and like judges and kings, they just decimate the enemy in no contest. There's no way a human king has the ability to stop him. So this means this has to be a 
angelic being, a fallen angel, which we know as fallen angels, but the First Testament calls them the sons of God, the sons of God that have gone rogue. So we've talked about this in the Divine Council of Yahweh thing that we went through. How else do we know this other than just mere strength of being able to stop him? We see this also because Michael is called a prince, a ruler. That word prince just means ruler. It can mean a prince as an I am the heir to the king, or it can mean a prince as an I'm just a ruler that serves a higher power. Prince doesn't necessarily always mean biological descendant of a king. It can mean just a high ruler who serves a greater ruler. So Michael is a prince. We know for a fact that Michael is an angel. So if Michael is called a prince, then the prince of Persia, or sorry, if Michael, who's an angel, who's called a prince, then the angel, the prince of Persia, is also an angel as well. So that points to that fact as well. Later he's going to say, I had to get back and help Michael because he alone stands against him. There's a sense that Michael can't even barely stand up against this thing as he's fighting. Now this is powerful. This is one of the very few insights into the spiritual realm that we're ever really given. And we're hardly given any insights to the spiritual realm. But what this says to us is that spiritual warfare truly is real. In Psalm 82 and Psalm 89, God specifically says that he put a son of God, and the son of God just means a... um, a supernatural being. You see this in Job chapter 1, verse 6, when it says, On that day the sons of God presented themselves before Yahweh in the heavenly realms. And then if some of your Bibles say angels, but in the footnote says in the Hebrew the sons of God. And sons of God is used multiple times to refer to supernatural beings, which we call angels. By the t- in the first testament they're always called supernatural they're always called sons of God. By the time we get to the Second Testament, they call them angels. So to be technically accurate, they're sons of God in the First Testament, and they can be good or bad. And they're angels in the Second Testament, and they can be good or bad. We now know them as demons if they're bad. But most of the time in the First Testament, you only know them by the way they act. If they're going contrary to the will of God, then they're a fallen son of God. If they're obeying the will of God, they're they're a holy, angelic son of God. Psalm 82 specifically says that God put a son of God over each of the nations after the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, he completely disinherited all of the nations. They were so rebellious and so contrary to God, he disinherited and said, I'm no longer going to use you to redeem the world. The very next chapter, chapter 12, he chooses Abraham and Israel becomes his chosen nation. And in chapter 19 of Exodus, God says, Though the whole world belongs to me, you, Israel, will be my special possession. You are my chosen people. You will be my firstborn son that I am adopting. Firstborn communicates headship, authority. So he had chose Abraham and not the nations, but he chose Abraham so that Israel as a nation would bring all the nations in Israel and redeem them. We see all the nations coming to God and the prophets we see this in Revelation. So when he disinherited the nations, he put a son of God in charge of each one of the nations. There were 70 nations in total. Then in Psalm 89, we see that some of these sons of God have gone rogue. They're disobeying God. They're rebelling against them. And Psalm 89 specifically says these sons of God, I will judge you and I will condemn you because you are not defending the oppressed and the poor 
and, the, and you are promoting wickedness and, and deceit. And so God says you will be judged one day for this. So this is the picture that we get, that this is one of those sons of God that God has put in charge of Persia. Then we're going to see that there's another son of God coming later over Greece that he put in charge of that. And these two have gone rogue. They're opposing God, and they're literally opposing Daniel's prayer request being answered. Daniel wants to know a better understanding of God's prophecy, and they're literally opposing the prophecy of God. Literally opposing this. And Daniel's praying. Now, what is the direct connection between Daniel's fasting and praying and the angel's ability to get to him after 21 days? We don't know. But there seems to be a point that spiritual warfare is real. That there truly is something that is opposing the will of God and the heavenly realms. There is something that is literally slowing down angels from bringing prayer, answers to prayer. And there seems to be a loose connection to the fact that Daniel's praying coincides with this. And that actually aids them or strengthens them in some kind of way. Now, I don't know how to explain all that stuff. But I do know that we're given better insight and a more of a connection in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul says, for our, spirit, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but, and he goes to list the principalities and the authorities. And these are words that are used to describe angelic beings in the heavenly realms and other places. And in the context of him specifically saying our battle is not flesh and blood, this says something that there is spiritual warfare going on. And he directly connects that spiritual warfare to the armor of God, which includes faith and prayer and salvation and that kind of stuff. And so there is some kind of connection that Daniel 10 is like the, the First Testament version of Ephesians 6, and where Paul is simply stating logical points. Daniel is physically illustrating. And that's not uncommon. You, you guys know that you've, you've kind of figured out over the years that other than the Gospels, the whole, first, second, the whole Second Testament is epistles. They're, they're systematic theology. They're logical arguments that they basically say, you must do this and this and this, and God's like this and God's like this. And what you understand is nowhere do you ever see God doing anything in the epistles. Nowhere do you see people doing anything in the epistles. You see God and people doing everything in the First Testament, the narrative. The epistles are then unpacking the meaning of the stories. You have to realize that when Paul says things and James says things and Peter says things, they often allude to the First Testament as the historical proof for what they're talking about. And what they're talking about is the unpacking meaning of that narrative story. And so they go hand in hand with each other. And so when Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he's specifically thinking of the Tower of Babylon and the flood and the pegging and the kings of Israel failing. There's, there's stories backing this. When Paul says, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but spiritual entities, I really think that he'd probably be thinking of Daniel 10 right here and thinking, you've seen this and the, the spiritual revelation. And so this angel shows up in order to share with Daniel at great battle and great risk. So he's come to help him understand. Verse 15, Why he was saying this to me, I was flat on the ground and unable to speak. Then one who appeared to be a human being was touching my lips. 
Now there Daniel specifically says it looks like a human. I opened my mouth and started to speak, saying to the one who was standing before me, Sir, due to the vision, anxiety has gripped me, and I have no strength. How, sir, am I able to speak with you? My strength is gone, and I am breathless. Then the one who appeared to be a human being touched me again and strengthened me. He said to me, Don't be afraid. You are valued. Peace be to you. Be strong. Be really strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and I said, Sir, you may speak now, for you have given me strength. This is incredible. Daniel is shaken to the core by what he has seen in this vision. And now he's overwhelmed by the power and the authority of this angelic being. And he doesn't have the strength to speak. I always think it's ironic that he's speaking as he says, I can't speak. But he doesn't have the, speak, the ability to speak very well. And the angel like just touches him and like energizes him like a supercharging battery or something. Like there, so this says something about angelic abilities too, the ability to transfer energy from one being to another being is actually possible with these entities and it strengthens Daniel. Now he is ready to engage this angel. He said, do you know why I have come to you? Now I'm about to return to engage in battle the prince of Persia. When I go, the prince of Greece is coming. However, I will first tell you what is written in the dependable book. There is no one who strengthens me against these princes except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood to strengthen him and to provide protection for him. Now I will tell you the truth. Now there's other places where it hints at that Michael, specifically the prince, assigned to Israel. He says the prince of Greece is coming. We know that because right now the prince of Persia is ruling over and strengthening the actual Persian empire and the earthly realm. But soon it will collapse under the strength of the he-goat that we saw in that vision, Alexander the Third, And so what he's saying is that there's a, another angelic being who's over Greece, and he's starting to become more and more powerful, and the earthly version of him, Philip II, Alexander III's dad, and then Alexander III, are becoming more and more powerful as well. And we see this oftentimes in the Bible, that what is happening in the earthly realm is also what's happening in the spiritual realm and vice versa. It says this is coming and Michael cannot stand because there's going to be a point here where they're both going to be opposing Michael at the same time and I need to go and help him because he helped and rescued me. That's it. Like we would love to, as humans, we love to know so much more of like what is going on and how does this work and, and how many others are going there. And the question I always have is like, where are all the other angels? Why aren't they helping Michael? And this, we assume it's Gabriel here. Where are these other angels? What are they doing? And so we know that there's thousands upon thousands of angels that have aided Israel in battles and supernatural, so much so that it sounded like wind going through the trees in the book of Samuel. And, and Elijah asks for the servant's eyes to be opened up, and he saw an uncountable number of them. So the question is, what is happening at this moment that there's only two of them? And, and so there's so many questions, and yet God just glosses over it and keeps going like he often does with the spiritual realm. We are so ignorant when it comes to the spiritual realm. And God just gives these, these little teasers that make you want more. It's kind of like watching a trailer and you, you, it's so cool for a movie and then you realize they never made it into a movie. 
And you're like, what the heck? Why, why did you do that? And so this is kind of what I feel like with the spiritual realm. God always gives you these trailers, and he's like, oh, but I didn't, I'm not going to give you more. There's nothing else. And don't know why, for whatever reason. And especially in the first test. And the second testament will be given a lot more. But it's still a drop in the bucket compared to what we could know. 